First Things First. Somebody say First Things First. It's a series of messages I'm very excited about for the month of January. You know, I call this hibernation season. You got no money. You got nothing to do. And it's time to get your life back in order because it's a new year, so welcome to church. And for those of you who haven't been here for a while, welcome back. We're so glad to have you, and I want to start to speak into you over the course of this month some, some good things for you to internalize for this year, 2018. Hey, 2018, how many of you want it to be your best year ever? Come on, somebody. Well, I believe it starts with health, and we talked about this last weekend that a healthy start begins with a heart for God. We talked about the heart, and in this series, we're looking at the heart, the soul, the mind, the strength. So today, we're looking at the soul. So uh, today is first things first, title of the message, a healthy soul keeps you whole. A healthy soul keeps you whole. Okay, take out your bulletins, looks like this. In the bulletin, there's two things I wanna pay, want you to pay attention to. The first thing is, this thing, it's a fasting and prayer informational brochure or pamphlet because we're gonna do something we did last year. We're gonna do a fasting and prayer campaign church-wide. Fasting and prayer. Next Sunday, here's how it's gonna go down. Eat lunch Sunday if you wanna join in with us and, and do this. And I challenge you and I encourage you and I ask you to do this with us. Eat lunch next Sunday and then forego food until lunch Wednesday, a three-day fasting and prayer campaign. Now, this might be your first time, so please take it easy. You might not want to do total food fast. You might want to do fruits only or something like that. If it's your first fast, I would encourage that. But if you've done this before, uh, I'm going to ask you to go for it. All in, uh, liquids only fast uh, for three days. Why do we do this? Because it's important to get our spirits right with God. And we're gonna pray over our church. Last year we did this and we had the greatest year in our history. We're gonna do it again. We're gonna expect even more because God leads us from one level of glory to another. Amen, somebody. We wanna fast and pray for revival in our area. Fast and pray for New England to love Jesus more than they love the Patriots. Hallelujah. I'm all for loving the Patriots, but you know, fourth place on my list. Come on, somebody. Jesus, my family, my church family, patriots. That's my, that's my priority list right there. So, but we wanna fast and pray for a spiritual awakening. We wanna fast and pray for another church plant coming up in our future. I believe we got more than two churches in our, future, in our, in our house and we're gonna see God plant another, a third location from this location, amen? Anybody believe in God with me for this? I believe it's gonna happen. So let's get, our, let's get our spirits right. Let's pray over it. And for you personally, for you personally, have some spiritual victory in some areas of your life where you're not experiencing spiritual victory. Remember, Jesus says this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. He means that there's some things, some demons, you can only get rid of when you pray and fast. So some of you got some things, you got some demons, and ladies, I'm not talking about your husband, but you got some demons. You need to pray and fast those suckers out. This is information about that. Read it. Don't read it now. Read it later. And I encourage you, next week we'll talk about it, um, and we're going to give you another pamphlet next week um, because we're going to tell you what to pray for in each meal. Okay? So again, uh, if you have dietary restrictions too by, by your physician, please don't ignore those. Uh, abide by those, but, but do what you can. And again, it's a food fast, 
So it's not fasting TV or fasting electronics or fasting your Xbox, okay? It's fasting food. A lot of these churches that I'm associated with, they, they do these 21-day fasting and prayer campaigns. I'm like, 21 days without food? Wow. And they're like, no, we fast electronics at home. I'm like, give me a break. <laughs> so basically, you're going to Dunkin' Donuts to check your Facebook. I get it. Okay, I get it. This is a food fast. Okay, so join with us. We'll talk about it more next week. Um, then, the second thing in your bulletin is this. It's the note page, first things first, and it's got the title on the top. Take it out, fill in the blanks, follow along with us. I encourage you to do that, and uh, we're going to get into this message. Matthew 16. First things first, part two. A healthy soul keeps you whole. How's your soul? How's your soul doing? And I'm going to talk to you about the soul because Jesus talked about the soul. God cares about you. Heart soul, mind, and body. And the text that we're going to go to today is a challenging text. I'm going to give you a full warning, okay? Jesus is going to challenge us today. He had some strong words about the soul because he knows the importance, the, the, the price, the value of a human soul. And it's, it is stated here in Matthew 16 unambiguously. The price and value of your soul. So would you stand with me? We, we stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to look in Matthew chapter 16, verse uh, 24 to 28. Reading the word of God today. Here's what it says. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever save his life will lose it. But, for, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Then this penetrating question. What will it profit a man, Jesus says, if he gains the whole world and forfeits his, what's the word, everybody? Soul. Or what can a man give in exchange or return for his, say it again, soul. Then he says, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, Jesus says, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And this is the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Ask God to bless our time together. Father, as we say time out to life and, and say yes to a moment with you here, Father, I ask that every moment forward, will accomplish your purposes in our souls. I pray that the words of my mouth will be what you want them to be and be pleasing in your sight, and the meditation of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight. We acknowledge today we need health deep down in the inner recesses of our being. And I pray always, and we pray it again today, help us to see Jesus and him only. In his mighty name we pray, and everybody said, Amen. Have a seat. God bless you. How's your soul? So last week, again, the heart, this week, the soul. And the question obviously is, and it came to me as I prepared for this message, is what's the difference between your heart and your soul? Because these can be conflated. And I think that there's a very sincere danger in conflating your soul with your heart. 
These are, two in, these are two distinguishable parts of who you are. And so I prayed for this moment. And I said, Lord, your people need to know the difference between their heart and their soul. And the Lord gave me, the, as soon as I prayed, it was an amazing moment, gave me the answer. And so I want you to write it down. Here's the answer. What's the difference between your heart and your soul? Okay, your heart is what you want. Your desires. We say things like, I have a heart for children. Well, that's, you just want to work with children. I have a heart for this business. You just want that business. I have a heart for the church. You love the church. You love it. You want the church. And so your heart, there's nothing wrong with this. So just put, put this in perspective. I'm just telling you that what you want represents the inner recesses of your heart. But your soul is who you are. Your soul is your identity. It's the person that you really are. How many know there's two yous? <laughs> there's the you you want people to think you are. And then there's the you you are. Like, I have two yous. I have two me's. I have the me I want you to like and the me that wants you to think that I know what I'm talking about and I'm a man of God. And then there's the me Cheryl knows. <laughs> and the Lord cares about that one. <laughs> that one matters to God, and he has put Cheryl in my life to make sure I don't neglect that one. Amen. <laughs> Who are you really? Your identity. This matters greatly to God. And Jesus says there's a temptation in the human experience to trade who you are for what you want. There's a temptation in our culture today to define self by what the body desires. This is where we get sexual confusion. This is where we get gender confusion. I'm amazed at how school systems are buying into this nonsense hook, line, and sinker. It comes from Sigmund Freud who had serious mommy issues. And we're pushing this on our children as if it's doc gospel truth. It is not. It's a lie from the pit of hell. You are not defined by your desires. You are defined by the Father who made you and loves you. You've got to make sure, though, that you don't conflate your wants with who you are. Everybody is almost inborn with this temptation to do so. And here's the first reason I want to give you why it's a very foolish game to conflate what you want with who you are. Because what you want will change. What you wanted when you were six is not what you wanted when you were 16. What you wanted when you were 16 is not what you want when you're 26. What you want when you're 26 is not what you want when you're 36, and so on and so forth. If you still want at age 56 what you wanted at 16, you got serious problems. And so we always think, though, that we know what we want. We don't. So we'll get sometimes what we thought we wanted, then we get it, we're like, shoot, I didn't really want this after all. And God is Father. He is caring and loving, and he wants it to go well with you. And so he's wise enough to keep some things out of your hands when you want them because he knows if you got them, they may destroy your soul. He loves you enough to keep you from your own foolishness. Don't conflate what you want with who you are. I have a six-year-old son. I have a 16-year-old daughter. I have a son in between, a 13-year-old. And the six-year-old does not know what he wants. 
It is my job to tell him what he wants. <laughs> and if you don't do this with your children regularly, I really pray for you. You've got to teach them. Because here's the deal. It's a funny story. My wife was telling me this, reminding me of this story last, last night. Um, when, when Jake, my six-year-old, was in preschool, there was an assignment to draw the, his family. So he drew me and mommy and his brother and himself, and he was done. <laughs> he missed his sister. No, he didn't miss her. His teacher looked at the assignment and said, uh, Jake, I thought you had a sister. He goes, no, I don't. What you have to understand about Jake and my daughter is they're kind of the same person in different bodies, so there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of friction there. And it's our job to say, I know, Jake, you may not want your sister, but you're going to get your sister, and you're going to love your sister if you ever want us to pay for any of your college. Hallelujah. We gotta tell them what they, we gotta keep them sometimes from what they want. You want my son, my six-year-old son wanted for Christmas, he got a lot of money, and he wanted to buy something for his Christmas present, and so what he wanted was a drone. Six years old. We foolishly bought him one. It hit the TV, the ceiling, the lampshade, it went back to the store, amen somebody. <laughs> that was enough. He, can't, he may want the drone, he can't handle a drone at six years old. It is a father's job to love his child enough to say, you really don't know what you want, so stop defining yourself by what you want. That's what our heavenly father does for us. Now, when Jesus says, take up your cross, deny yourself and follow me, this is what he's talking about. But he's not saying this in a vacuum. I wanna show you, I wanna unpack for you where Jesus says this to the disciples and why he says it to the disciples because context matters. Somebody say context matters. So in Matthew 16, let's back up to what Jesus, from what Jesus has just said. Let's back all the way up to verse 13 and here's verse 13. Here's the context to which Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And because you can't give anything for your soul, here's what he says, here's what it says. When Jesus came, verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, big question, who do people say the Son of Man is? Who are people saying I am? What's the word on the street? Identity question. What do other people say about me, guys? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, Elijah, some say you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And then he turns the question on them, penetrating question. He says, who do you say that I am? What a question. Can I tell you today, your life is defined by the answer to that question. Who's Jesus to you? Your eternal life hinges on your answer to this question. It really doesn't matter what other people say about Jesus. It matters what you say about him. Amen. Amen. So he's asking his disciples, do you know who I am? And Peter steps up to the microphone and he comes out with it. It's like one of those God moments for Peter because you know Peter is captain, open mouth, insert foot every other passage. But this time, he gets it right. And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Oh! The father's in heaven saying, I can't believe he did it. <laughs> no, he's not, seriously. But Jesus turns to Peter. And he says, blessed are you, Peter. I'm sorry, Simon. 
Bar-Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who was in heaven. Can I just tell you today that you only truly know who Jesus is when God reveals him to you. One of the best prayers you can pray is, Father, I want to know who your son is. Show me Jesus. He'll answer that prayer every single time. So Jesus just unloads on Peter, because Peter's nailed it. He knows who Jesus is. So Jesus blesses Peter. He says, blessed are you, Simon. Bar-Jonah means son of Jonah. And then notice the next verse. And I tell you that you are Peter. What happened to Simon? I got a new name for you. Notice that once Peter understands who Jesus is, Jesus now wants Peter to understand who he is. And he is not what other people have made him. And he is not what other people have called him. He is what Jesus has named him. You are Peter, the Greek word Petros, meaning rock. And so Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Nobody's going to stop what I'm going to do through you, Peter. Woo! 2,000 years later, how many know Jesus knew what he was talking about? And then he says, and I will give you, Peter, the keys to the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And I just see Peter's chest just starting to stick out further and further. His head being held high. All the disciples are always like, shoot, I wish it was me. I wish it was me. And Peter is thinking, now I've arrived. And and identity... Notice for a second. Identity for Peter then produces activity, not the other way around. Because what we do is we wrestle to make our identity rooted in our activity. That's not how it works with Jesus. So verse 20, it says, he strictly tells the disciples, don't tell anybody about this. And you say, well, why did he do that? Because they hadn't yet received the Holy Spirit. And if they, did, and, they tried, and if they tried to do this thing without the Holy Spirit, they would have sincerely messed things up. So just hold on, he says. Don't tell anybody yet. And then from that time, the next verse, from that time, if you've got your Bibles open, circle it, from that time. Because again, context matters. He began to show his disciples, and this is the first time he mentions it in Matthew's Gospel, that he must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer at the hands of the chiefs, priests, and the scribes, and the, and the elders. And he must be killed. And on the third day, he must be raised again. Notice now, don't miss it. Once they know who Jesus is, now he's ready to inform them what Jesus does. Activity flows from identity. Jesus lived a perfect human life. He modeled for us what what proper humanity looks like. And what he says is, basically, when you know who you are, it doesn't matter what you do. You can do what God calls you to do because you know who you are. And he knew it. He knew. Jesus knew. I'm going to give my life for you. I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer. No man, he says, takes my life from me. I lay it down. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to bring it back up again. I know exactly what I should do because I know who I am. And Peter didn't like this plan. 
It says Peter rebukes him. Never. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And how many know? It sounds like Peter's concerned for Jesus, but, but let's be honest. He's just learned what he's going to be in Jesus' movement. So come on, everybody. Peter's really worried about Peter. Jesus, if you die, that's bad for me. You, you just talked about keys to this Ferrari thing you're building on the universe's stage. Binding and loosing, I'm really into that. Whatever it is, I'm into it. Heaven and earth hinging on what I do. I like the sound of that, Jesus. If you go die now, that's gonna stifle some of my plans. He doesn't understand. And then Jesus turns to him. Get behind me, Satan. Ouch. You, you ever have a day where you go from blessed art thou to Satan in a hot second? You know what I'm talking about? You start the morning off, oh Lord, I just love you, I love you, I love you. Then you get into bumper to bumper traffic and you are cursing the world. Get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me. You're holding me back from what I should do. You have not in mind the things of God, but the things of man. The things of man or when we see what we can do and accomplish and become and acquire as more important than who God makes us. And to that moment, Jesus says, watch out for your soul here. You can gain the whole world and lose who you are. And you can't give anything in exchange for it. Do not conflate who you are with what you want. Everybody catch this now? A healthy soul will keep you whole. So I got three things to say and then we're done. Number one, I, think, I believe Jesus is saying, chasing what you want can cost you who you are. We all live in the chase. We call it the rat race. We all live in the chase, don't we? The chase for money, the chase for notoriety, the chase for substance and significance, the chase for value, the chase for love, acceptance, approval. The, the chase is uh, many faceted. Even in the church we do this. Let's not, be, let's not deceive ourselves. We do this with Christian stuff. I want my kids to be important. I want my kids to be good Christian children. I want my family to be the perfect Christian family. I want my husband to be a certain way. I want my wife to be a certain way. I want that notoriety. I want stage presence. I want to be important on the stage. I want people to see me singing to the glory of Jesus, even though deep down inside I know I'm singing to the glory of me. Oh, I'm sorry. I might have I stepped on some toes right there. I'm so sorry. I know I stepped on toes because nobody said amen except Kelvin over here. Thank you so much. Praise you, Jesus. Come on, we do this. We live in the chase because we have, we have incorrectly conflated identity with activity. If I get that house, if I get that spouse, if I get that white picket fence existence, then I will feel like I've made it. And how many of us could stand here and say, I've done that and it doesn't work? You can get that 4,000 square foot house with four bathrooms and six bedrooms and you can think, wow, I finally got it. But then suddenly you wake up the next day and you realize you gotta clean it. <laughs> you gotta heat it. 
and some of you, you're like, oh, I want to get that job. I want to get that position. Why, are, why am I always passed over? Why does, why does my ship never come in? And then it comes in, and you get the position, and you get the status, and then you realize you don't have the character to undergird it. Watch your soul. We spend so much of our lives working on what people see. We don't pay attention to what God sees. Hollywood is starting to wake up to this reality. I hope they truly wake up to it. I don't know if they're going to, but they're starting to see the cracks in their armor. All of this, you know, male-dominating women scandal that's coming out now. I read an article, it was a fantastic article from a non-Christian. It's like, wow, they're starting to get it. They're starting to wake up. And the article said, you know, we, we're constantly playing this game to guard how people see us. And he called it the, the, the capability reputation. Capability. What you can do tells people who you are. Activity. And, they, and, they, and the article said, and what we do, the temptation is to chase capability reputation at the expense of character reputation. Case in point, Harvey Weinstein. And what they said was, and it was phenomenal that they made this confession. It is more tempting to chase capability reputations because if you can produce a great piece of art, it will take a long time and, a, and many other forms of terrible art before people realize you're not that capable. You can get lucky sometimes in your industry. You, re, you remember Harper Lee, she, she wrote... Um, um, to Kill a Mockingbird, and went a long time before she wrote anything else. And the next book came out, and it wasn't that great. Her capability reputation was tarnished, but it took a long time. So the temptation is to say, let me build myself up with, with, a, with getting the prize, producing, producing the product, getting the, the lifestyle, and then people will think I'm capable, and it will take a long time before anybody realizes I'm not that capable. So that's why it's so tempting. And then the article said this, character reputations are far more flammable. One spark and it's gone. And I thought, I read the article and it, and it said this in the article, it said that when, uh, when your character reputation is destroyed, competence or capability becomes immaterial. My translation, people won't care what you did when they find out who you really are. Jesus' translation, what do you gain if you gain the whole world and you forfeit your soul? Because capability can take you where your character might not be able to keep you. That was tweetable right there. Just give me cred because I build my reputation on my tweets. Amen, okay? You understand what I'm saying? We're all tempted to do this, building our lives on what people think and see rather than on what's deep down inside. Jesus says, it's a fool's errand. What for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, root yourself in what I do for you, lose yourself in what I do for you, and then what you do for you can be the fruit of what I've done for you, and you you don't have to worry about the results because your faith is secure in God for eternity. 
and your soul is rooted in him. Don't build what you are on what you produce. Number two, number two if you're taking notes. Identity is captured in the cross of Jesus Christ. If you never produce another thing that people praise you for, you can still glory in the cross of Jesus. And the cross testifies to every child of God, you are valued. You are precious. You are loved. You are worth something to the God of the universe. And if you get yourself rooted there, you're not gonna care about managing those outside external things that you want everybody to be impressed with. Jesus says, if you come, to, come after me, deny yourself. Get, get over that stuff. And then he talks about, it's in your notes there. He says, from that time on, in verse 21, he began to show his disciples, he's gotta go to Jerusalem, die, rise again. And then he says, if anyone would come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. What's, he, what's Jesus saying? He's saying, listen, here, I want you to get, I want you to understand what I'm gonna do for you. I'm going to the cross for you, for you, Peter, for you, John, for you, James, for you guys, for people at Water Street. I'm going to the cross for you. The cross stands as testimony. God values you. You're worth the blood of his son. That's, there's no other price you can pay that's higher. So I, I got three identifiable realities for Christians, okay? I want you to write them down. This is, this is what the cross teaches us. Number one, the cross teaches me that I am a sinner who needs saving. I'm messed up. I got issues. Anybody in the house got issues? Turn to your neighbor and say, you should have raised your hand. <laughs> There are things that you cannot stop doing that hurt you. There are things that you have, there's controlling issues, controlling substances, controlling habits that are tearing you apart. They're hurting your soul. You gotta take ownership through the power of the cross. Let the cross go deeper. See, we never leave the cross. We just grow deeper into it. We grow deeper into it. No, that's not gonna give me what the cross gives me. That pleasure is not gonna be better than the pleasure of God's love for me. I'm a sinner that needs saving. Secondly, the cross teaches me that I am God's child whom Jesus purchased. I'm God's child that Jesus paid for by his blood. This is what Peter says. First Peter chapter one, verse 18, for you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors, and it was not paid with mere silver or gold. They lose their value. It was paid by the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. You don't get a higher valuation than the Lamb of God. And, and, and so, um, just back up there in your notes, I want to put this up on the screen because this, I'm going to get somewhere here. When Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, in verse 11, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. He's talking about this. He's talking about how if you don't root yourself in the cross and the valuation God has put on you, you'll give yourself to, to uh, desires of the flesh that will wage war on your existence. Don't fall for it. 
The cross teaches me that I am a child of God whom Jesus purchased. Number three, if you're taking notes, is I am God's, I am Christ's follower called to change. Oh, I feel bad for the Christians in the house who don't think they need to change anymore. <laughs> Ask your mom. <laughs> Ask your spouse, somebody, please be honest with this person. You got issues, I got issues, I know I'm messed up, I know I need to change. It's come as you are, it's not stay as you are. It's come as you are, not stay as you are, amen? That's why you'll come to Waters Church and you'll come to a couple services and you'll think you died and went to heaven. Whoa, look at this place, look at this church, look at these people, look at that guy on stage. He looks like he's a real deal kind of Christian. Oh my gosh, I'm in the throne room of God today. And then you'll get to know us. You know what I'm talking about? Because we're all in the process of transformation. We, we come as we are, amen. God changes us and transforms us. So James will say to us, verse 21 of chapter one, he says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Save them from what? Rampant wickedness. Rampant wickedness and, and the filthiness and the lusts of the flesh and the lusts of the eyes and the things that you think that if you get, you'll be somebody. And they are not more valuable than the blood of Jesus. You know, the Lord gave me this picture because I just thought about um, scaffolding. And I wanna put a picture up on the screen because it's a building being built surrounded by scaffolding. And I, and I thought, what a beautiful picture of our life as followers of Jesus because what God is doing, he's building you. Even, I think, 1 Corinthians, it says, you are God's building. He's putting, you know, levels into you. He's putting rooms into your spirit and your soul into your being. He's creating something beautiful. It takes time. But while he does it, he puts scaffolding around you. And what we often do is we forget that scaffolding is temporary. Only a fool who's building a building says, leave the scaffolding. I like the look. <laughs> the scaffolding comes down when the building is done. And I thought about it for you and for me. Many of the things that we fall in love with are temporary scaffolding structures. Don't fall in love with them. Don't chase them. Don't serve them. Use them. Thank God for them while they're there. And when they're gone, embrace the next season of your life. So what is your scaffolding? I thought about this. What's your scaffolding? Some of you need to hear this. Relationships can be scaffolding. People who loved you in your 20s may not be there in your 30s. And you might say, well, why did God take them out of your life? Because you didn't need them in your 30s. You needed them in your 20s. He knows what he's doing. This is, the, this is the fool's errand of many Christian parents who build their lives on what their kids become. Because you can train them and you can love them and you can give them church up until they're, they're, it comes out of their ears and they can still walk away from the faith. And if you build your character and your identity on how good your children are when they don't turn out as good as you want them to be, you'll lose yourself. 
scaffolding. A spouse, as hard as this is to believe, is a scaffolding measure. God's using them to build you and you to build them. And someday, one of you is going to die. I mean, I don't want that to happen. It's going to happen. The only place where, where man and wife fall asleep dead together is in the notebook movie. Come on, somebody. That's the only place. Life happens. Children, raising children, that moment in your life, that season in your life, scaffolding. It comes, it goes. Don't build your life on it. Embrace it for the season that it is and let God use it and then take it away when he sees fit. Jobs are scaffolding. You know that you're building your life on a career when you overpay an institution to give you a degree to make you set you up for a job that you may inevitably hate. It's just temporary. Don't build your life on that. Don't build your life on that. Money. Scaffolding. It comes and it goes. And some of you, you're building your life on your financial position. And, and the first test that I know you're failing here is because you can't give God the first tenth. You can't do it. You can't say, God, here's your first fruits. Here's the first fruits of what you've given me. Back to God. It's called the tithe. You can't do it because you build your life on your financial statement, your net worth, and you're telling God, how dare you touch what I've built my life on. Scaffolding. It comes and it goes. And some of you are like, you were much well, well off previously, and now you're tight financially in this season, and you're like, well, what happened? Scaffolding. That's all that happened. God knew you needed a little bit more money back then. Now he needs you to get your heart right, your spirit right, your soul right. He needs to eliminate some things materially so that he can speak to you spiritually. Do, do you understand what, what it's all about? Don't fall in love with the temporariness. Think, and I'm not saying that they're bad. I'm not saying any of this stuff is bad. What I'm just saying was bad is to orient your life around it. Even our solar system teaches us this. Planets don't know where they're going until they know where the sun is. Humans don't know where they're going. I didn't time that. That was... <laughs> Hallelujah. Until they know where the sun is going. Where's the sun? S-O-N. In your life. When you've oriented yourself around him, everything else opens up. So number three and finally, when my identity is captured in Christ, my activity is freed to live for him. So now I can parent without putting a, without putting a bunch of pressure on my kids to fulfill my dreams. See, this is how therapists make their money. Right here, friends. This is how they make their money because they're all talking to kids whose parents put tons of pressure on them and they're never going to live up to it or parents abandoned them because mom and dad were chasing some other idol. I can parent my kids with the freedom that God has said, look, I value you. Let me, let me worry about your kids. I value them too. And I can do my job. Listen to this. I can do my job honestly and with integrity. And I don't have to cut corners. And I don't have to overcharge or underpay. And I don't have to 
weasel my way to the top because God may give me the top, he may not give me the top. And even if he gives me the top, I know still, even then, the top is temporary. I can do my job from the freedom of knowing who I am. Activity flows from identity. This is how you guard your soul. And so Jesus closes out this passage by saying, I'm coming again. The Son of Man is going to come. Can we just stop there for a second? You know, Jesus is coming again. Don't be ashamed that it's coming. Don't be ashamed that it's coming, chasing all these other fools' errands, all these other fools' go. Don't be ashamed that it's coming because you will be ashamed when he comes if you've chased other things rather than rooting yourself in who he is for you. So that when he comes, you'll be proud. When he comes, you'll be ready. When he comes, you'll be glad. And you'll know his reward is coming to you according to what you've done. Because you did what you did. Not for satisfaction in making yourself who you are. But for the joy of being God's son rooted in the finished work of the cross of Jesus Christ. And you know you can live the way he wants you to live because your eternal value is settled in heaven forever. I'm just, I'm just telling you, there's no other way to do it.